we move into John chapter 13, there's a few quick things that you need to keep in mind. First, chapter 12 formally closes Jesus' public ministry. He's come to Jerusalem presently to celebrate the Feast of Passover, even though a bounty has been placed on his head by the religious establishment. From this point forward, beginning with John 13, Jesus will now retreat. He'll withdraw from the multitudes, spending private time with the disciples. Secondly, John 13 immediately transitions us to a scene. It's a scene that has Jesus in an upper room enjoying a final meal with his 12 closest disciples. In fact, chapters 13 through 17 of the Gospel of John will record the events and conversations of this fateful night. Jesus' public ministry now turns private and very, very personal. Thirdly, the context for absolutely everything Jesus does, as well as what he will share on this night, centers upon an important reality. And it's the fact that the next 24 hours, during the next 24 hours, Jesus will be betrayed by Judas. He will be arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, abandoned by the ten, denied three times that night by Peter. He'll be tried illegally, brutally scourged, humiliated. And the next 24 hours, he'll be crucified at Golgotha and ultimately laid in a borrowed tomb, the tomb of a man named Joseph of Arimathea. And it's with all of this in mind that John chapter 13, verse 1, transitions us to the remaining chapters of this amazing gospel of grace. We begin with verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, that he should depart from this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. As we dive into the events of these final 24 hours, The Apostle John wants his readers, you and I, to know something very, very important. He begins, when Jesus knew that his hour had come. Though it would be easy to see the way that this night unfolds as being a tragedy. Well, honestly, that would be a wrong and false assessment. Not only was Jesus not caught off guard by anything that happened this night, fully aware of what awaited him. The truth is that according to John, this was all part of Jesus' plan. Again, he writes, his hour had come. Well, there are many aspects to the larger work that Jesus had come to accomplish. He did know in the end that with these things, with what would result, what would come, he would depart from this world. This would be one of the results. Jesus would finish his work. He would ascend to heaven and take his rightful place at the right hand of the Father. Again, the context for Jesus' final moments with his 12 closest disciples is the knowledge that he is going to be leaving them. In reality, Jesus knew that he only had a few hours remaining. Time was short. The moments he had left quickly fleeting. There is no question that Jesus had much that he needed to share with these men 
during these final moments. The fact is that he needed to prepare them for what was coming, knowing they were oblivious. As John thinks back, as an old man, recording the events of this evening, so many years after the fact, notice that he describes Jesus. Before he gets to any of the events, he describes Jesus this way. As he thinks back about this this evening, he says that having loved his own who were in the world, Jesus loved them to the end. Before John recounts any event or records any of the things that Jesus shared, you know what he remembered most about that evening? He remembered Jesus' love. This word love in the Greek, it's agape. This wasn't a superficial or even a brotherly love. This was a deep and sincere love. This phrase, that he loved them to the end. It doesn't mean that Jesus loved them to the point in which he died. That there was an expiration point to his love. No, 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 no. Instead, a better translation would be that Jesus, yes, he loved his own that were in the the world, but he loved them to the outermost. It's a description of, of his love. He loved them. He loves you and I. And that love, friend, most amazingly, knows no limits. It has no boundaries. To quote the modern scholar Buzz Lightyear, Jesus loves you to infinity and beyond. Verse 2, And supper being ended, the devil having already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, And that he had come from God and was going to God, rose from supper, laid aside his garments, took a towel, and girded himself. John starts his account and supper being ended. The supper, in reference, is the formal Passover Seder meal. What's interesting about John's account of this evening, of this supper, isn't what he writes about. It's really what he excludes Unlike the other gospel authors, John doesn't mention once Jesus' instituting of communion. The reason this is likely the case is that these things had already, by the time John writes, been very well documented. In the gospels, Matthew writes about this in, in Matthew chapter 26. We also find it recorded in Mark 14 as well as Luke 22. As a matter of fact, by the time John actually gets around to writing his gospel, the apostle Paul has discussed Jesus' instituting of communion this night extensively in 1 Corinthians 11. Instead of these things that have already been recorded and repeating them, John focuses our attention instead on several aspects of the evening that no one had recorded. I should also mention this phrase, supper being ended, is misleading at best. The word here, being ended, in the Greek, it means actually to come into existence, or literally to come to pass. A better translation into English would be in the midst of supper, not when supper was over. Before John recounts a specific event whereby Jesus here in the midst of the supper abruptly rose up from the table, laid aside his garments, took a towel, girded himself. He wants us to know of two deeper dynamics at play that in the moment every one of these men were oblivious to. They were all ignorant of. First, John finds it important that we understand before we get to what Jesus does 
that the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas to betray Jesus. Following the resurrection of Lazarus and Jesus' growing popularity, John chapter 11 closes. Now both the chief priests and the Pharisees had given a command that if anyone knew where Jesus was, he should report it, that they might seize him. While these men wanted to arrest Jesus, the challenge was finding a specific time and a location where Jesus would be isolated and removed from the multitudes who'd likely riot to protect him. Well, following Jesus' rebuke of Judas to the suggestion, the offering of precious ointment that Mary had given would have been better utilized if it had been sold and the proceeds given to the poor, Matthew and Luke tell us that it was in that moment when Jesus turns to Jesus, like, leave her alone, that in Judas's heart, he formally joins this conspiracy. As a matter of fact, directly after the exchange we read in John chapter 12, Matthew 26, verses 14 through 15, this is what we're told. Then one of the twelve, Judas Iscariot, he went to the chief priests and he said, what are you willing to give me if I deliver Jesus to you? And they counted out to him 30 pieces of silver. John's point is that going into this final meal, Judas has already hatched a plan with the religious leaders. Judas knew that following supper, Jesus would likely take the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane to pray. Judas knew that the hour would be late. Much of the city would be asleep. Jesus would be out in the open, totally vulnerable. By the time this dinner started, a plan was in motion. All that was needed was Judas's signal. You know, over the millennia, much has been written about Judas's core motivation for betraying Jesus. Some have theorized that Judas was simply trying to prompt a revolution. That his betrayal was, was really nothing more than an ill-advised attempt to force Jesus's hand to be king. It's argued that when Judas then realizes that his plan had backfired, things took a, an unexpected turn, that he gave the money and then kills himself out of deep remorse and regret. They'll point to passages like Matthew 27, where we're told that Judas, seeing that Jesus had been condemned, was remorseful and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and, and elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said to him, what is that to us? You see to it. So Judas threw down the pieces of silver in the temple, departed, and went and hanged himself. On the flip side to this theory, others have sought to remove the free will component to Judas's betrayal altogether by claiming that he was actually born to commit such a dastardly deed. Advocates for such a position will claim that in the end, Judas Iscariot really didn't have a choice in the matter. Those who make this particular argument will point to John chapter 6, where Jesus said, did I not choose you, the twelve, and one of you is a devil? And then John immediately adds that Jesus spoke of Judas Iscariot, for he was the one who would betray Jesus being one of the twelve. Now, the problem with both of these two theories is that neither considers the entirety of Judas's profile. First, in John 6, Judas is not called by Jesus the devil. Instead, he's called a devil. The Greek word Jesus uses in this passage is an adjective, diablos, which really does describe a serious flaw 
and the man's character. That there was something devious. And yet this word diablos doesn't mean that in the particular moment, Judas was in some way the devil incarnate. Or for that matter, possessed by Satan. In fact, we're going to see in this chapter that Jesus is going to go to great lengths to give Judas Iscariot an opportunity to abandon his evil plan. Now, ultimately, he doesn't. And then in verse 27, we're told that Satan entered him. Though Judas was a free moral participant in the betrayal of Jesus, and you can't make the argument that the devil made him do it. In the verse we just read, it's also clear that Judas's motivations were far from noble, right? Again, we find this adjective, diablos, used for the devil. And yet we're also finding here a definite article before it, the, indicating what? That Satan, the great accuser of the brethren, had sparked this plan in Judas, had given him the idea for his betrayal. So he wasn't the devil made him do it. But on the flip side, he wasn't, his intentions weren't noble. Now, the fact is we don't know what Judas's motivations really were. The Bible doesn't tell us. But we can say with certainty that Judas Iscariot did not care for Jesus' well-being. Nor does he care about the kingdom. Judas seems to act with a vengeance and a vindictiveness. Regardless, Judas's premeditation is not the only thing John wants us to be aware of before we get to Jesus' activities. While Judas had a plan afoot, notice that Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going to God. John's point is to make it known that while Judas had a plan, the devil had put something into his heart, Jesus wasn't at the mercy of any of these events. In fact, the contrary. John tells us that Jesus was very much in control of everything that was taking place. Like, understand, especially as we get into the events of this evening, that Jesus wouldn't end up the victim of a heinous crime. Instead, he would emerge as the victor. Jesus not only maintained total power and authority as he approached the cross, but Jesus was secure and confident in who he was, what would result, and where he was ultimately going. Judas's plans had no bearing in any of that. So it's with this in mind, these two things working in the undercurrent, that John remembers, as he thinks back about this evening, how Jesus, at some point, abruptly gets up from the table. And he walks over and he lays aside his garments. And without explanation, he takes a towel and girds himself. Verse 5, John continues that after that, Jesus poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with a towel with which he was girded. The first thing that John recounts about this moment is how Jesus rose from the table they were all sitting around. Like Jesus not only got up from a place of comfort, a place of honor. But John remembers how he lays aside his garments. 
This word garments doesn't mean that Jesus stripped naked. He takes out his, his, his outer coat, his outer tunic. Now, not to deviate too far from the scene, but this is not the first time that Jesus has laid aside his garments. In the incarnation, the king of heaven laid aside his heavenly glory to don human flesh when he came to Bethlehem as a babe. You should also note that the next time these very garments would be removed from Jesus is when they were torn from him during the scourging. As you imagine the scene, this moment where Jesus arose only to take a towel, gird himself, pour water into a basin, and then begin washing the disciples' feet, I want you to realize that this moment would have left the disciples with a ghastly horror. Not cool, Jesus. What are you doing? Recently, we've given you the the report, but David and I went to Cuba. And when our bus arrived in Sandino for the pastor's conference, we were greeted by members of the church who proceeded to have us sit down, remove our socks and shoes, and then they washed our feet. I will say that I was humbled, honored by the kind gesture, but I'm not going to lie to you, that it was really awkward. Really awkward. If I had known, I would have washed my feet in advance. You see, no one washes my feet but me. And yet, what Jesus is doing would not have been awkward for the disciples. What Jesus was doing, they were accustomed to. Foot washing was a normal part of culture and society. That said, what Jesus was was doing, in fact, Jesus was doing it, was shocking. If not downright taboo. Washing the feet of guests who entered a home was reserved in this culture for the lowliest of servants. In fact, according to religious traditions, Jewish slaves were forbidden from washing feet. The act itself was seen as being so degrading, such a degrading job, that it was left just for Gentile servants. There is no question that Jesus here, in washing their feet, is illustrating for these men what what real humility and servitude looks like. Jesus, God, the Christ, the King, was willing to get up from His place of honor. He was willing to set aside his garments and get on his hands and knees and wash their feet. He laid aside his garments, girded himself, and humbly cared for a very practical need. Once more, Jesus was willing here to touch the dirtiest parts of their being. Frankly, our ability to grasp what's taking place in this scene ends up hampered by the fact that we're not Eastern. We come from a Western cultural perspective. At best, our cultural context presents a foot washing as a token of respect. Washing someone's feet as a a token of honor akin to maybe removing your shoes before entering someone's home. I don't know if your mom always told you to do that. Mine did. When you go to a visitor's, go to the neighbor's, you take your shoes off. It's a sign of honor, a sign of respect. And yet, tragically, such a perspective fails to even scratch the surface on what's actually taking place. Why this is so significant. 
You see, in Eastern culture, the feet were seen as the dirtiest part of the human body. (laughs) And for good reason. Ancient streets doubled as sewage canals. And most wore a sandal-like open shoe. Their feet got gross, disgusting. You see, washing feet when you entered a home was standard practice. They didn't let you go very far. In fact, it would be uncouth to not wash the feet of a guest when they were visiting. Case in point, in an exchange with a Pharisee named Simon, who took issue when a woman interrupted his dinner with Jesus, Luke chapter 7, verse 44, we're told that Jesus turned to the woman, but said to Simon, Do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet. But she washed my feet with tears and wiped them with her hair. Clearly, Jesus was slighted by the fact that this skeptical Pharisee, Simon, had not even offered, not even given him the common courtesy of having his feet washed. Beyond that reality, in the East, feet were seen as being so unclean that even after being washed, feet were never allowed to face a meal. Now again, in our Western context, where we sit at a table with our feet on the ground, this seems like a non-issue. But not so in Eastern culture or during Jesus' day. As with the Seder meal, it was standard practice to share a meal with friends at a U-shaped table called a triclinium. The triclinium, a table, U-shaped, was only about a foot or so off the ground, meaning that when you ate with friends at a table, you would lay down on a pillow with your feet facing away from the table. Then you would, with your left arm, brace yourself, and you would eat with your right hand. If by accident, your feet were to ever face the table, the entire meal would be declared unclean, which was a big deal because you were what you ate. So if the food was declared unclean, you had to get rid of it because you couldn't defile yourself. The dishes would be removed. In fact, an entire meal would be reprepared. They took feet seriously. My point is that the focus of Jesus' activity is just as important as his act of service. We get very wrapped up in the fact that Jesus washed people's feet without considering he washed people's feet. You see, there were all kinds of ways that Jesus could have taught these men about servanthood. All kinds of ways he could have communicated or illustrated humility. But Jesus specifically decided to wash their feet for a much larger reason. Now, before we get to this reason, I can't help but point out the fact that even knowing what was in his heart, imagine that Jesus still washed the feet of Judas Iscariot. Like, what must that moment have been like? If you take anything away from this morning's message, please, please hear me with this. One point. And that is the fact that as he did then, he does now. Jesus is constantly demonstrating acts of love to even his greatest enemies. It's one thing to love your friends. It's one thing to love those that support you, those that have your back. But to love practically the very people that hate your guts. 
tells you a lot about Jesus. Now, as you imagine the scene, Jesus, again, has girded himself. He's got this towel, this water bowl. He's making his way around the table. And then in verse 6, we're told he comes to Simon Peter. And Peter says to Jesus, Lord, are you washing my feet? And Jesus answered and said to him, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. And Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. And Jesus answered, Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. Now in this interaction with Peter, it becomes clear that Jesus is illustrating something much deeper than what they even knew. He makes this point about as clear as you can. He says, what I am doing, you do not understand right now. And yet, notice in response to Peter's emphatic declaration, you shall never wash my feet, Jesus makes a fascinating statement. He says, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me, Peter. <laughs> Peter is focused on feet. But Jesus is clearly more interested in something else entirely. You won't wash my feet, bro. It's, if I don't wash you, there's a disconnect. There's no doubt that the act of washing their feet, Jesus was using to illustrate a much larger concept. In fact, it was a concept so large, so important, so critical, that Jesus tells Peter, if he refused to participate in the illustration, it, there was the door. He could leave. Let's finish the exchange. Verse 9, so Simon Peter says to Jesus, Lord, okay, okay. Not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, He who is bathed needs only to wash feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. Therefore he said, You are not all clean. So when Jesus had washed their feet, taken his garments, he sat down again, and he said to them, do you know what I have done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you say, well, for so I am. If then your Lord and teacher have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you should do as I have done to you. Now, there are some who extrapolate out this particular illustration to imply that Jesus was teaching the disciples about the essential cleaning, the washing, necessary for salvation. And yet, the problem with this supposition is that it fails to take into account the totality of what Jesus says. First, Jesus knows that he's about to leave these men. Meaning, everything he does, everything he says is for what? It's to prepare them for the moment he leaves. So with that context in mind, it's obvious that Jesus is giving them a lesson with a future application. To this point, he even says to them, what I am doing, you do not understand now, but you will know after this. After what? After the events of this evening. In the original language, Jesus is contrasting here their inability to understand now with the reality they will come to know what he's talking about later on, or literally afterwards. Secondly, in light of the future application of the particular illustration, 
Jesus says to the disciples, look at it again. He says, he says you are clean. Before then adding a caveat that that statement doesn't apply to Judas, who wasn't clean. Now what makes that declaration so fascinating is that this word clean, the word Jesus uses in the Greek, katharos, it's actually a Levitical term that spoke of the purification of sin. The removal of guilt. It would appear in the context of these first two points that the lesson Jesus is illustrating through the washing of the disciples' feet would actually be applicable after their salvation and ultimate cleansing through His atoning work on the cross. To understand what's happening, I should repeat that. Jesus is illustrating a lesson that would be applicable after salvation. Thirdly, and this seems consistent with this reality, Jesus' ultimate exhortation that they ought to wash one another's feet just as He had washed theirs can't apply to salvation, can it? Why? Because that's a cleansing that only Jesus can do. We can't cleanse ourselves of that or cleanse another of that. Keep in mind, there is a reason that foot washing is not a sanctioned church ordinance. Unlike baptism and communion. The reason for this is that though Jesus demonstrated this in the Gospels, we don't find any example of this foot washing practice taking place in the book of Acts, nor do we ever find a moment where it is expounded upon by the epistles. There's three things we always need for an ordinance. Jesus illustrates it. We find it in the first church. And it's expounded upon in the epistles. Not so with foot washing. Washing feet appears to be a one-time illustration aimed at articulating a larger application. So, what washing is Jesus illustrating in this moment if it's not salvation? Again, it's such an important moment that if Peter didn't participate, he was out. Now, there seems to be two clues to this answer presented in these verses. The first clue is found in Jesus' statement to Peter, specifically in response to his request that Jesus wash his whole body. In the first part of verse 13, look again what Jesus says. He says, he who is bathed needs only to wash his feet. The second clue is found in the two different terms that Jesus uses in the passage. He uses this term wash, which is different than the word clean. The way Jesus uses the word clean implies a permanence. That you're clean. You are clean. It's a permanent cleansing. Not only does it imply that, it it signifies a position to be clean. A status. Jesus never mentions here being clean, but instead what? Washing. Being washed. In fact, Jesus seems to be presenting the notion that you are clean with washing simply being a return to that original state. Now, in light of these two clues, track with me. But it appears that Jesus is talking about a washing that's needed for those who are already clean. I'll repeat it. Jesus is talking about a washing needed for those clean. You could read this as Jesus saying, you are clean, guys. 
But you know what? Your feet get dirty. Again, this would explain why the entire application of the lesson doesn't reply to Judas. You know, it's true that while you and I have been cleansed by the blood of Jesus, made white as snow, that we've been made righteous before God, while it's true that you and I enjoy practically in this moment a sinless position in heaven because we've been justified. When God sees you and me, He sees us just as if I'd never sinned at all. But with all those glorious truths intact, there is still, in a practical way, right, a worldly residue that we naturally pick up simply because we walk around a fallen planet. Like, in a way... While clean positionally, and that never changes, practically, our feet get dirty as we make our way in a sinful world. Aside from the natural grime and muck we pick up from living in the midst of a culture in rebellion against God, isn't it also a reality that sometimes our feet get dirty when they end up traveling into areas they shouldn't have? Or that our feet get dirty pardon the expression, but when we step in it? Well, none of us need a bath. Why? Because Jesus has permanently cleansed you and I through His work on the cross. Something Peter will learn. Practically, our feet do need to be washed off from time to time. You see, in these moments, when we step in it, You know what we need? We need a brother or a sister to come alongside and remind us we're cleansed by lovingly washing off our feet. Again, while only Jesus can cleanse us from ungodliness, how amazing Jesus intentionally left the washing of feet to his disciples. And why? Because he's in heaven. The fact is we all play a pivotal role in the process of forgiveness. The process of restoration demands all of our involvement. In verse 15, Jesus is clear. I've given you an example. And then what does he say? That you should do to one another as I have done to you. You know, the truth is the reality that this dynamic is only possible two things happening at once. First, we must be willing to wash another's feet. Foot washing can never happen if there's not a willingness to do it. Secondly, foot washing can't happen either if you aren't willing to allow someone else to wash your feet. requires two things. A willingness to wash and a willingness to be washed. And let's be real for a moment. Both aspects of that are very challenging. Like, for, like to wash someone else's feet. Well, it requires a real, sincere, and selfless kind of love. The kind of love that's described is to infinity and beyond. To wash another's feet requires a willingness to get your hands dirty with the crap cake on someone else's soul. Play on words. 
Such an act demands that you step down from some high position and like Jesus, assume the place of a lowly servant. And here's the truth. The only way that you could ever do such a thing in the life of someone else is if you first experience the cleansing power of Jesus when he originally cleansed you entirely. If you would be cleansed from head to toe, why can't you watch someone else? As with all aspects of the Christian life, such an act like this, it's reciprocal. Like we can wash the feet of others for one reason. We've experienced that cleansing touch of the Lord. When Jesus says to Peter, if I do not wash you, you have no part with me. This is what he's articulating. You see, it's impossible to treat others like Jesus if we haven't first encountered Jesus personally. In fact, Jesus says that that such an act is blessed. Look at verses 16 and 17. He says, most assuredly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master, nor is he who is sent greater than he who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you. Literally, happy is the person if you do them. And yet, you know, in order for this blessed work to happen in your life, to happen in another's, it requires something of you. But to happen in your life, it also requires something of you. In order for you to be washed by another and reminded You've been cleansed by Jesus. You have to be willing to expose your dirt to someone else and allow them to be Jesus' hands in your life, washing your feet. And, and you know what? Not to just play on the analogy, but, but let's be real. Like a literal foot washing, allowing someone else access to such a part of your life that's dirty and gross, that's incredibly awkward. Like, we like to keep our dirt hidden, don't we? You go all the way back to the garden. The immediate reaction to sin in the life of Adam and Eve was what? Exposure? No, it was to hide it. They ran and they hid. We like to keep our dirt in the closet, if necessary. (laughs) I don't know, maybe you're like me. But we'll double sock that area of our lives and lace it up tightly behind a new set of Jordans to keep it from anyone. I'm not taking my shoes off. My feet are gross. And yet, the problem with dirty feet is at some point in time, they begin hindering your ability to walk. Not initially, not immediately, but over time, dirt yields to infection and to rot. How interesting that of all of the lessons Jesus needed to teach his disciples before he departed, this was the first lesson. And you know why? (laughs) Well, for these men, they were all about to royally step in it themselves. And Jesus would be gone. And they would need each other. And brothers and sisters, every one of us have dirty feet. Worldly residue we pick up during our walk. Sometimes it's just the result of of living in a fallen, messed up world. 
But other times, we get dirty because we had we went someplace we had no business going. We went down a trail that was not wise. It's a truth that it's virtually impossible to walk through a cow pasture called life and not step in it at some point. And when that happens, what do you need? You need someone willing to wash your feet, to tell you it's okay, to come alongside and say, but you're clean. It's just dirt. That's not who you are. It can be washed away. It's not your position. It's just the residue. It's all right. Let me help. And when this happens, when we step in it, may we not judge one another. Man, your fear grows. Look at those jokers. Disgusting. Shouldn't judge each other. Nor in our pride should we conceal our own messiness. Church should be a place we come and have our feet washed. Not literally. It's an illustration. But we should be willing to expose our feet to one another and willing to wash because Jesus has cleansed us. In James chapter 5, verse 16, James is the half-brother of Jesus, the leader of the first church in Jerusalem. He gave this exhortation. He said, confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another. Why? He adds, that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. What a moment when the king of heaven girded himself and washed feet and turned and said, you ought to wash one another's. So we should. Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.